Hi, BTEC students. So this is the second part of the methodology discussion. It's going to talk to you about the last sections that will need to be included in the methodology. For those who don't know what I'm talking about, you need to go to part one first because that will uh, explain to you the fact that the methodology has a number of different sections, how they are ordered, why they are ordered like that, and um, obviously then it talks in detail about the first sections that need to be included. So I'm going to just pick up from where that left off. So we ended off with talking about 5.4, which was instruments, and we, I'm going to move on to 5.5, which is data analysis. Now there will be later a, another podcast specifically dedicated to data analysis. But in the methodology section you do need to be aware that you will be talking about the analysis that you are going to do later. So for the proposal you are proposing what you are going to do with the data once you have it. So once you've done the interviews and you've transcribed what people have said you can't just, you know, read those transcripts and based on your own opinion or based off of what you think is the most important issues, write down what your findings are. You need to follow a systematic process for making sense of the data. Um, and there are many different ways to do that. So if you are doing a quantitative study, the data analysis is likely to be statistics. So it would be not just percentages. So those who are doing quantitative studies know this. Percentages is not stats. Percentages is descriptive um, information about the data. Your statistical analysis is things like your chi-square, your ANOVA, your uh, standard deviation. Those are, uh, those are the kinds of measures that would be required at a BTEC level for a statistical analysis. If you don't know what those things are and you're wanting to do a quantitative analysis, I would recommend strongly that you dissuade yourself from that idea because teaching yourself how to do a, a statistical analysis and how to use so the software like SPSS um, may be incredibly challenging. Most people who use a statistical analysis will have a dedicated course, a module on statistical analyses, on understanding the maths behind it, and we simply don't have time to add that as a 10-week as a course <laughs> into the BTEC uh, module. So, um, I would not encourage you to do that unless you already understand those statistical measures. But for the majority of you, those doing interpretive or critical projects within the qualitative approach, you will be using different techniques to make sense of your data. And that is fitting with your ontology, epistemology and methodology. So I'm going back a little bit to touch on those things because all of these things need to be consistent. Remember that those that is one of the key ideas, 
that we are working towards with our projects is a single clear consistent project that where all the different elements of the project are speaking to a similar position and a similar perspective on the topic. So for interpretive and critical uh, projects, there are a range of different kinds of analysis. In particular, the ones that you may want to consider, depending on your topic. The first is a textual analysis. Textual analysis is obviously only relevant if your data is text. And I don't mean text as in your transcripts. I mean text as in it started off as a written piece of work. So you're looking at a diary, you're looking at an online blog entry, you're looking at a newspaper article, those kinds of things. So you're doing a textual analysis of already written material. The other kind that you can consider, and this is for both interpretive and critical researchers, and this is the kind that the majority of you will be using, is what we call a general thematic analysis. Now a general thematic analysis is doing something very particular in that it is uh, looking for themes in the transcripts and there are various ways that it does that to make sure that its understanding of that work is fair and unbiased. So I will explain in a second the steps involved but um, you need to know that for all kinds of data analysis, whatever data analysis you are using, you want to be able to convince the reader that the approach you're using is fair and unbiased, that you are not just sucking out of your thumb what makes the most sense to you, but that you have systematically gone through all of the transcripts equally and imported certain ideas or certain uh, methods to make sense of what you're seeing. And that's what you need to be doing in this section, is to firstly say what approach you're using, and then to convince the reader that this is a fair and un unbiased uh, approach to looking at your problem. And so in terms of the different approaches, as I said, the ones that you, could, you should consider is thematic, uh, is, sorry, is textual or general thematic analysis. There are other approaches and you may want to consider them. So there are things like a discourse analysis, which if you're doing a social constructionist project and you're looking at discourses, that makes sense. Those are, that's particular to critical work. You may want to look at narrative analysis. You may want to look at uh, other kinds of linguistic analysis, looking at language. And those ones, uh, you, there's also visual, uh, visual analysis for uh, pictures or moving images, both still or moving images. So there are a variety of different kinds of analysis that can be applied. Um, and you need to pick the one that makes the most sense for your project. 99% of my students uh, use the general thematic analysis for a variety of reasons. One, because it is 
both interpretive or critical, so it's easy to apply to whichever project you want to use. And the other reason is because it's a really straightforward, simple approach for a first time doing analysis. So I would encourage most of you to consider a general thematic analysis. But of course, you can propose whichever analysis makes the most sense for your project. The general thematic analysis that I usually teach and I will, will be teaching um, in class in the coming weeks is one that is by Braun and Clark. They have a six-step analysis for their version of a general thematic analysis. And it's quite straightforward. There are six steps. You follow those six steps and you will come out with your findings. For the proposal, what that means, because you obviously can't do the analysis until you have the data. So for the proposal, what that means is that you're going to tell your reader who's, well, which analysis you're going to use. Is it going to be narrative? Is it going to be general thematic? Is it going to be textual? Is it going to be visual? Right? What kind of analysis are you going to use? And then whose kind of analysis you're going to use. So if you're doing a narrative analysis, you could be using a whole range of different people who talk about narrative analysis. And in fact, Within the community of people who work on narrative, there are very, very different views on how to analyze information. Some of them are more descriptive, some of them are more linguistic, some of them sit in the middle. It's, um, it's not the case that all narrative analysis looks the same. So saying what kind of analysis you're going to be doing is not enough. You need to also say whose analysis you're going to use. So if you're using a general thematic analysis like I recommend, are you going to use Braun and Clark's method or are you going to use somebody else's method? Right? So that's the first thing. So you need to say what approach you're using, then whose approach are you using. And then you need to also um, talk about what that means. So what are the steps for analysis that that approach includes? Braun and Clark, like I said, have, have six steps. They're quite straightforward. We're going to cover that in class. And like I said, there will be a follow-up podcast to uh, talk in a lot more detail about data analysis. But um, for now, you just need to know that you need to provide the steps as well as part of the description of which analysis you're using. You obviously can't say how you followed those steps yet. That will come later. So at the at the end of the year, your methodology will be updated to include more of the practical stuff of how things was act, how this was actually done. But for now, it's enough to just say these are the six steps that I'm going to follow. And you can use an I in methodology. Um, for those who are more interpretive or quasi-positivist, you sort of lean towards trying to find the truth. Because your ontology is more objective, um, you may want to refer to yourself as the researcher. But I don't mind in the methodology if you either are talking about the researcher or I. It doesn't matter. Okay, the next section is 5.6. It's a section called Rigor.
I will be sending you a reading on rigor um, because it is something that is a little bit harder to understand. But rigor is just showing the reader why your data is real. That's fundamentally what it is. Why, why your findings and your data are real. And they're real because you followed through on a very structured, systematic process. So you didn't influence the data too much. Your questions weren't too leading. You analyzed it systematically. And so you can actually say that your findings have some reality behind them. They're not just your opinion or your thoughts on this issue. And the terms that you want to refer to in terms of rigor, if you're talking in quantitative terms, you're talking about validity. That, the language of that is specific to quantitative studies, so qualitative researchers don't normally talk about validity, unless they may be doing like a mixed method where they're doing quants and qual in the same project. Um, so validity is the quantitative term. The qualitative term is things like generalizability, transferability, and confirmability. So how can we um, show that this information or these findings that we have are actually realistic, that they actually can speak to the issue in a bigger sense and not just to your participants? So these are things that you do need to, to think about and address in your study. Okay, the next section is uh, reflexivity. I encourage all researchers to engage in some kind of reflexivity, especially if they are qualitative researchers. Um, but it is optional for um, qualitative research and quantitative research. The only people who are compelled to to include reflexivity is those who are doing uh, critical studies. Uh, it's mandatory for critical studies um, because within critical studies your ontology, your relationship with the data as the researcher is that you are participant. So you need to, as the participant, reflect on what's happening. For everybody else this is an optional section um, and in reflexivity, you are talking about who you are as the researcher, what you bring to the table, whether there are any dynamics that need to be considered. And so it's really just engaging with your own privilege, in a sense, and your own power within research. So in research, and in, this is true of all research, you as the researcher have the power to decide what gets said. So even though you're asking your participants questions, at the end of the day, you are deciding what questions to ask, you are deciding how to analyze it, and you are writing it up. So fundamentally, what gets written in the final project is a result of what questions you asked and how you made sense of what people were telling you. And you could have chosen to exclude stuff that people thought think was important or you could have chosen to highlight things that they thought were unimportant and so because of that power that you as the researcher have it's important to acknowledge who you are if you are doing research across different uh, groups so if you are a white researcher like I am 
who does research on black participants, what does that mean for your study? If you are straight and you are doing research uh, amongst people who are gay, what does that mean? If you are coming from a different class background or a different gender background or, or from uh, a, a, a different ability level, if you are uh, physically able and you're working with people who are disabled, if you are working with people who are of a different age to you, all of those things are important to consider. So you need to be able to reflect on all of those dynamics that you bring to the table in terms of who you are and, and, and what kinds of things are, you have privileges around, um, or even just differences from your participants. And, and then to acknowledge what that would mean for the findings that you have. And you may want to, as a part of this, talk about how you might mitigate some of these issues. So, for example, if the issues are around language, differences in language, will you have somebody who's going to help you to translate, right? So, so that that can help to deal with some of those issues, um, etc. right? So whatever you're going to be doing to deal with the, the issues that are present, you can also reflect on those at this, at this point. Okay. Remember, this is mandatory for critical studies, but not but optional for other studies. I do definitely, and you can expect this. Um, this is a necessary requirement, I think, of research. So I do definitely look for criticality in research, where you are aware of your own critical position in relation to knowledge building. And this is certainly one place where students can uh, grow the criticality of their projects. But if you choose not to do a reflexive section, just be aware that I will be looking for criticality in the project as a whole. And so it may need to come somewhere else if it doesn't come here. Okay, the next section is, is ethics. Ethics um, is is mandatory for all research. All research has to meet the ethical requirements uh, of the international research community, but also of DUT specifically. And there are four ethical issues that are compulsory for all researchers. So the first one is anonymity and confidentiality. Anonymity being that participants are not named, confidentiality that no identifying information is revealed about your participants. And you have to be somewhat discerning about identifying information because what identifies somebody in one project won't identify them in another. So if the study was about uh, white people, it wouldn't matter that you called me, whoever you named me as in your research, the white uh, participant. Right? Because everybody's white, so it doesn't matter that you, you indicate my race. But if it was a study where I was the only white participant in the room, by identifying me as white, everybody would know what, who I was. So even though you don't ever call me by my name, people will know who I am. Uh, so 
be careful about thinking about your project, about what are those things. So it could be somebody's job title. If they are the CEO of a company, it's going to be clear. If you say it's the CEO of the company, even if you don't name them, it will be clear who they are. If you say they are the wife of the president, well, again, it's we know who that is. And it, and it could be um, specifics of like naming people in their lives, saying where they live, what their age is, um, their ability level, right? So um, you need to be very just discerning about what counts as identifying info in your project. I also, we had a very long conversation in class about naming participants. I do not at all recommend naming participants, even if they consent, because the implications of being in, involved in the research may be ones that they are not aware of. So in five years' time, ten years' time, somebody, something blows up in the media. Somebody may, let's say, somebody you interviewed is now running for president. And the media finds your study from from 2020 and this person's like yeah but when i participated in that study this wasn't part of the deal that it would cost me the presidential campaign so you don't want to name people even even if they consent because they don't know what they are consenting to the implications the, the long-term implications of research um are unknown even to you as the researcher sometimes so it's very crucial that you don't name participants the second issue is that there is informed consent not just consent informed consent meaning that the participants must know what they are signing up for they must know what you're going to do with them what the topic is about how you're going to make sense of what they tell you how it's going to be uh, distributed um, whether you, you're going to um, you know, share their information with people like their bosses. right? So they need to be able to understand exactly everything that this project means. That at, at the very least that you can be um, realistically aware of at the moment. And they need to sign based on a full awareness of all of that information. So that's what we call informed consent. The next issue is that they have a right to withdraw. Um, this is a non-negotiable. All participants in research have a right to withdraw at any time without any negative consequences. And that means they could have done the interview with, with you. You could have spent 20 hours transcribing it. You could be halfway through analyzing. And they say, you know what? I've changed my mind. This doesn't feel comfortable to me anymore. And as a researcher, you, you have to respect that. There are no um, like loopholes with the right to withdraw. If a person withdraws, they have that right. It's a full right in terms of the international research community, and that has to be respected. The only time <coughs> their withdrawal is conditional is if you have already published on their... Um, on their story, on their interview or focus group. So if you've already published it and they withdraw after that, the only thing you can do is then say to them, 
you will exclude them from any future publications. But even at that point, you've already published on their work and you've, you're now building into a, a career potentially in relation to the knowledge that they, them and others have given you. And you have to be able to say, okay, I'm now going to stop using what you've told me for, uh, in the future. So the right to withdraw is not negotiable. The last idea is one that um, of do no harm. It's what in sort of legalese is called non-maleficence. And it's really the idea that the participants should benefit from your research more than they are harmed. And this is a tricky one because it speaks mostly to the kind of research where people are sticking needles uh, into people or giving them diseases to, to be able to check vaccines and that kind of thing. But even in, in the humanities and social science where there's no overt harm, we need to be aware of any potential harms in our research and try and mitigate them as, pos as much as possible. So if we're talking to people about trauma or about violence or about things that are hard, uh, HIV, um, poverty, uh, crime, whatever, right? We're talking to them about things that our social ills, which almost all of our research is about, we need to consider that there may be potential harm to participants and how are we going to try and minimize that as much as possible. Because if there is any threat of, of long-term, short-term or long-term harm to participants, the study is not ethical. So it will simply not get ethical clearance. So you need to be able to, to very carefully consider the ways that you ask questions, the ways that um, you treat participants and to make sure that they are not under any kind of obvious stress or anxiety or, um, yeah, that nothing is going to produce a negative, uh, any kind of negative result uh, with the participants. Now, those are the four compulsory ethics. And every single research project has to have those in them. But I would encourage you, and this is another place for criticality, to consider more than just those four ethics. A researcher that um, presented on ethics once said um, in a workshop that I'd gone to that you should treat your participants like your mother. And I think that that is such a fantastic way to think about research ethics. Because there are so many other things beyond those four that I've mentioned that you need to also th think about. So you need to think about, is the participant walking home alone in the dark? Do they have to catch three taxis to get home at their own expense? Do they have they had something to eat that day? Um, and are they coming to the research completely broken and hungry? Um, are there going to be other kinds of implications for talking to you, such as potentially um, you know, feeling sad or depressed or unhappy that you maybe need to engage with? That, you know, um, one thing that you can certainly do is link your participants to the counsellors at DUT if you feel that they may be in any way, any kind of need for that. Um, so those kinds of things would be 
what you need to be considering in terms of a critical ethics or an ethics of care. So find some articles. There are plenty of articles on ethics of care or critical ethics that will help to guide you to think about whether you want to think beyond just the four standard obligatory ethics of research. Because I think that that's actually important. That if we're working in a context like South Africa, where we acknowledge that we have power in research, we also then need to try and deal with our participants as human beings and engage with issues of justice and humanity through the ways that we treat our participants. So it's not enough to just simply give them a cup of coffee and wish them well on their way. I think that we need to meet people as human beings first. And that may be more than just the four ethics that I've spoken about. So do the reading, go in and have a look at that stuff. The last section is 5.9, Timeline and Budget. Those, these are quite straightforward. You're going to draw up a timeline of both what you have already done and what you're planning to do for your project so that your uh, reviewer, whoever is approving your proposal, obviously in this case myself and the moderator, um, are able to say that the timeline is realistic, that you're not planning on only doing your data collection in 2021 because, well, you ain't going to graduate, right? So you need to draw up a timeline working backwards. When are you going to hand in the final project? We know that the date, the date for that is in December. So if that is when you're going to hand in the project, you still need to factor in, you know, working on feedback from me, being able to hand in maybe a first and a second draft before that, when are you going to do the analysis and the write-up? When are you going to transcribe? When are you going to do the data collection? So actually draw up a plan of, of when everything is going to happen so that you can at least work towards that plan. The other thing is your budget. Now at a BTEC level, you don't have sponsorship or uh, faculty slash DUT support in terms of funding, but um, you will still have... A, a few costs. So things like printing, um, whether you need to uh, buy snacks for your participants, whether you um, are trying to access other material. It, your budget should be as limited as possible because it's a BTEC level and, and we're not looking to interview lots and lots of people, but there still may be some costs, maybe some transport costs for you or your participants. So, and think through the budget and, and propose that budget. Because again, when your proposal is being approved, we're saying that that budget is, is realistic and feasible at this level. Okay, so that is the, the different sections for the methodology. And just while I remember that 5.9 is only for your proposal. Later at the end of the, end of the year, that falls away because it's, this is for us to approve that the project is time yes and and realistic financially um at the end of the year we don't we don't really care if it was went over budget um so 
Um, just note that that is only for now. But in any case, these are the, the, the nine sections that must be in your methodology if you go back to part one and now part two of this description. We are going to have some more discussion on ethics, particularly when I take you through the PG2 form. I will do a podcast on that. I will have more time to talk to you about data collection, particularly um, as you uh, think about the philosophy of data collection and how to... Uh, plan for what the practical issues that may come up in doing interviews or focus groups. And I am going to do um, some more on data analysis. So those ones are definitely going to get more attention. But for now, these are the nine sections that you need. You can start writing and that will help you to think about what you are actually doing in your research. So... And to show the ways in which you are applying a single approach and a single paradigm and a single theory to the topic that you are looking at. So I hope that that helps you as you are writing the methodology. I will be posting more podcasts in the next couple of days uh, in relation to the other issues that I've spoken about. But do obviously send me any questions that you may have. Cheers.